Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Kara Fitzgerald. I am so excited to be talking to a um, going on decades long friend um, <laughs> who happens to also be a brilliant clinician and now is a medical director at a great laboratory. Anyway, let me back up and tell you about her before I brag on her. Dr. Carrie Jones graduated from the National University of Natural Medicine School of Naturopathic Medicine located in Portland, Oregon, where she was adjunct faculty for many years teaching gynecology, advanced endocrinology. She completed a two-year residency in advanced women's health, gynecology, and hormones, and later went on to complete her master's of public health at Grand Canyon University in Arizona. She's been the medical director for two large integrative clinics in Portland, Oregon, and she's currently the medical director at Precision Analytical. Uh, she often writes for women's health websites and take part, takes part in podcasts and interviews and lectures and does all sorts of stuff all over the planet these days. Carrie, welcome to New Frontiers. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. It's great talking to you Yay. after knowing you for decades. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. It gets a little frightening. Um, yeah, we, so we graduated together, as I, as I mentioned, and now Carrie's the medical director at Precision Analytical, and we're and you know you've met already if you listen to my podcasts Mark Newman who founded Precision Analytical, and he's their chief uh, analytical chemist. He de de develops all of their tests, and you know they're on the map for these amazing urinary hormone assays. I think Mark has really revolutionized um, the field, and so Carrie, in her role as medical director, is you know just doing a fabulous job training clinicians on how to use these tests and how to interpret them. And so today we're going to be talking, we're going to back up. Um, Mark, my conversation with Mark was a little bit geeked out, a little bit more uh, <laughs> analytical. <laughs> and today, today we're going to keep it very clinically relevant um, and kind of fill in some of the gaps. So Dr. Jones, Let's just yes. talk, talk to me about the Dutch. You know, what, the, what does the name stand for? What is this, this amazing test that you guys are doing over there? Well, it's funny. Everybody always asks me, oh, Dutch, are you touch, testing Dutch ancestry? Is this a DNA <laughs> test? I'm like, no, 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 no. That's so funny. It's an acronym. It actually stands for Dried Urine Test for Comprehensive Hormones. So we aren't a saliva test. We aren't a 24-hour test. Like we collect in a bucket for 24 hours. We're not a serum test. We are a dried urine test and hormones and adrenals um, and a few other markers um, are, is, is what we do and what we look at. So it's really, it's really, really pretty easy. And just as you said, it's pretty revolutionary. Yes, it is. So I just want to underscore that if you're new to this, if you're new to the Dutch, there's four um, sample collection time points. So you're not, your patient is not carrying around their bucket for 24 hours to capture all of their urine, um, nor do they have to go for a blood draw. Uh, so it's, it's really an easy test to do. And I think the data are relevant. Talk to me about how it's, um, uh, talk to me about its relationship to saliva and serum. I mean, I know there's some differences and then there are some, um, and, and 24, like let's throw it all. Yeah. I mean, is it, is yeah. it as reliable as serum, which is, you know, the gold standard and et cetera? Yeah. And actually we have a study that's kind of, that's coming out. that's going to be published comparing dried urine to serum. So that should hopefully be out or be, well, be selected, I should say, um, here soon. And then, you know, that we can have that um, from, from maybe your next podcast. Okay. But yes. And so the, with serum, of course, obviously, like you said, it's our gold standard. We can get all your, your basic hormones, your estrogen, your progesterone, your, your 
your testosterone, free and total testosterone. Um, and you can do a, a single, you know, blood cortisol, but of course you miss out on, is it, is it the bound up cortisol? Is it the free cortisol? And then with saliva, the great thing about saliva, which is what made it so neat was that you could spit in a tube four times in the day and you would get your free cortisol. Um, so you get your circadian rhythm through the day, but you miss out on your metabolites, which is the, the way your hormones are being processed in your body. And that's when 24-hour became really cool. Like, okay, now we can get hormones and we can get the metabolites to see which, which way does estrogen go, how much cortisol are you making in total, where are your androgens going. But as we know, it's kind of a giant pain and it's not very convenient for people to collect their urine um, over 24 hours in one bucket. And so with the dried urine, it sort of fit this really neat um, niche of you get the four points during the day. So you get the free cortisol, you get your circadian rhythm, and because it's urine, you get all your metabolites. You get your phase one and phase two detox um, pathways of estrogen. You get your alpha and beta of androgens. You get your metabolized cortisol. So you get this, like the best of all the worlds and sort of one nifty little test. Yeah. Right, right. Indeed. I mean, it is. Um, so why do we want to know about estrogen metabolites? You know, and I think that the, the big one everyone always thinks about is the, oh, the 216 ratio. It's got to be all about the 216 ratio. And mm -hmm. now, of course, as we know, the, the 216 ratio is not nearly as important. 16. Well, give me, give me the little background on 216. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, well, let me, let me, let me okay, go back any no. further in case you're listeners. So with, with estrogens, you know, the, obviously we know the body makes estrone and estradiol and estriol, um, but estrone and estradiol have to get broken down. And so they go through phase one detox and that those create the phase one metabolites. Collectively, you know, you have your 2-OH or 2-hydroxy estrone, your 4-hydroxy estrone and your 16-hydroxy estrone. And then those get recirculated. And then um, to get out of the body, uh, they generally go through what we're looking at in our test is through methylation through um, with the COMT or COMPT gene. And so once, once the, the two, the four, the 16 get, goes through methylation, the active methylation, um, then it, it becomes methoxy. So two methoxy, four methoxy, and then it gets, you know, excreted out of the body and um, we can test for that. And so when a man or a woman has a really healthy phase one and phase two detox, it means their estrogen is being taken from estradiol or estrone through phase one, through phase two, and then leaves the body nice and safely. And it reduces the risk of breast cancer, you know, maybe prostate cancer, you know, estrogen dominant symptoms, um, heavy, heavy periods, long periods, tender breasts, PMS, things like that, because things aren't recirculating, they're getting moved out. But to, to answer your question, what was tested originally was, oh, we, they, everyone thought, oh, the 16-OH, the 16-hydroxy was the one that causes actually causes DNA damage and cancer. And so, and then the 2-OH or the 2-hydroxy is considered the safer of the phase one metabolites. Yeah. So everyone wanted to know what's the 2-16 ratio was what it was called. And people didn't really know about or kind of forgot about the 4, the 4-hydroxy. And it comes to find out the 16-hydroxy, the 16-OH, for sure, I call it the estrogen dominant metabolite, because if you have a higher 16, for sure, people, you know, you're going to probably have heavy periods or, you know, PMS or um, estrogen proliferation is kind of what, you know, we refer to it as, mm -hmm. but really it's the four, it's the four that goes down this other sort of uh, naughty pathway, the quinone pathway. And if it doesn't get stopped as it goes down the quinone pathway, which is, again, it's not going through methylation like it's supposed to, it, you know, turns tail and goes the other way. Then that's when you get risk for 
DNA damage and, you know, cancer risk goes up. Right. So it's important to look at all the pathways to see where your patient's headed. Right, right, right. Yeah, there was quite a little controversy, a buzz, you know, some years back when 216 was being challenged. Um, I think it, you know, it was a nice starting point, but it, it did push us to expand. And I, I appreciate having 4-hydroxy, 2-hydroxy, and being able to look at 2-methoxy and seeing what's going on with methylation. It's for, sh it's for sure a very helpful addition and um, gives clear treatment direction for us. And we can right. see you know, we can see the 2-methoxy, which has actually been shown in, in, in the literature to be protective. So we want that as robust as, as we can. Right, right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And everyone assumes, as, as, as you know, you know, they, we, they see the word methylation and they're like, oh, give folate. It must be MTHFR. I'm like, well, it's helpful, right. but no. <laughs> right, right. Actually, no, it's in COMD. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah. It's a whole different, whole different gene. Right. But it does rely on S-adenosylmethionine. Yes, yes. Um, okay, so uh, talk about looking at progesterone um, and the progesterone metabolites. You know what? We're yeah, and like that. so that makes it urine is a little different. So progesterone itself, what you might get in a serum test or saliva test, doesn't show up in urine. Um, but what shows up are the progesterone metabolites. And there's really great clinical data, well, I should say, literature data to show that the progesterone metabolites often match um, what's going on in the serum or the saliva. And what's really neat about the two metabolites? So in the in the human body, we have an alpha metabolite and a beta metabolite. And it's the alpha metabolite of progesterone that crosses the blood-brain barrier and basically helps with the GABA-A receptor in the brain. And so the classic example is your perimenopausal woman who used to sleep really well and maybe didn't have that much anxiety. And now she's not making much progesterone anymore. And she comes to you and she says, I don't understand. I'm having anxiety all the time and I can't sleep. It's because that alpha, that... Um, that alpha metabolite is not there anymore to stimulate GABA, and maybe she has some GABA issues, and then she's worsening her sleep um, and her anxiety. And so it's really neat to see on the Dutch test, I can go, oh, look, you're an, uh, you're an alpha dominant person and your levels are low. This is what used to protect you in the past and it's not anymore. No wonder you can't sleep or no wonder your anxiety is through the roof. Wow, isn't that fascinating? So yeah. the research on progesterone as being useful for hot flashes, is it this mechanism, do you think? You know, it's, that's a really great question because I find with hot flashes, and, and you may d agree or disagree, with hot flashes, depending on the person, you can use oral or sublingual or, or vaginal or topical. And, you know, like topical might work for one person, oral works for the other. However, to, to get that alpha metabolite up and to, to, to cross the blood-brain barrier and stimulate GABA, it's oral. It's oral or sublingual that does it. Yes. And so, right. So it's a different um, delivery system. Yep. Absolutely, I have. I've without question. I've seen. I've. I've observed that that you have, yeah. that we have to go oral. Yeah. Um, okay. So that that's a real. That's an extremely useful pearl, and you'll see it um, on the test. I'm actually looking at a patient's Dutch test now. In fact, this is the the complete uh, panel that I'm looking at. And we'll. You'll if you go to the transcription page, folks. Uh, there's a there's a PDF of a of a sample test, so you can kind of take a glance at what we're talking about here. Um, extremely useful pearl. And what, you know, ideas for interventions when you see the alpha really low, um, do you just go for oral progesterone to bump yes. it up? Is there anything, yep. are you using GABA as well? I mean, are you doing anything else? 
I do. Yeah. I'll use like GABA derivatives, especially if it obviously depends on their complaints. But when I see that they're not an alpha dominant person, so it's going to take more on my end to get their alpha up, that may be the woman who needs more oral progesterone. So for example, her friend may only need 100 milligrams of oral progesterone, but she may be alpha dominant. And then somebody who's beta dominant may find they need 200 milligrams of um, oral progesterone to, to get the same effect. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's sort of how I, you know, gauge it when I'm mm-hmm. looking at the dials. Okay. And then what are your GABA derivatives that you're referring to? Um, like the, um, well, I mean, I guess I'll use GABA, but my concern with GABA is that it's not supposed to cross the blood brain barrier. Correct? Totally. Yeah. <laughs> yep, that's right. And but, then if it does, you're like, ah, dang. <laughs> well, you know, it, GABA, no question, works for some folks. So maybe, oh, yeah. maybe it's some, some kind of a metabolite product or something. I mean, something's, something is doing something with straight GABA, even as we, we know it doesn't directly cross. So are you using like a phenylated GABA? Yes. Yeah, I was going to say I use like phenobute stuff. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so let's talk about testosterone then and the testosterone. Yeah. So speaking of alpha and beta pathways, they go down the same way, which people, you know, don't maybe don't quite realize. So DHEA and testosterone keep going down the steroid pathway and there's an alpha pathway for testosterone, which of course is your alpha DHT, um, and there's a beta pathway. And what can happen is if you go down the alpha pathway, that's when you get your typical uh, PCOS-like symptoms. Uh, You get facial hair, acne, anger and irritation, maybe hair loss on the head, Men may experience um, same male pattern baldness, prostate enlargement, BPH. And so you may have a man or a woman with completely normal levels of testosterone, and yet they have really bad acne, or you know, they're really angry, or their hair is falling out of their head. And I look and I go, oh, okay, you actually greatly favor the alpha p- pathway. That's why you can have normal levels of testosterone, but when it gets broken down, you're going down this aggressive pathway, and it's being aggressive on your skin or on your hair, and we need to do things to mitigate that. Now, from a lifestyle standpoint, big things that push the alpha pathway, I mean, sometimes it's genetic for sure, but inflammation yeah. and blood sugar and insulin dysregulation, which of course we see all the time, yep. <laughs> but the more inflamed somebody is and the more they, blood sugar and insulin is out of whack, then usually the higher their alpha. And so if I can just get those things cleared up from a lifestyle standpoint, then great. They're, you know, the hair starts, stops falling out. Their anger starts to get better. Their acne gets better, what have you. Now, obviously there are a lot of herbals and, and, and supplements like zinc is a, is a good one. And we, we tend to think prostate herbs, uh, you know, saw palmetto, stinging nettle, um, pygeum, reishi mushroom is a great one for blocking the alpha pathway, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And so it's, you know, it's, it's funny. I'll, I'll give women prostate support and they're just <laughs> oh, horrified. You know, they're like, wait, Dr. Jones, I don't have a prostate. I'm like, no, no, I know. I need the herbs inside. Just, you know, try to explain it to your husband or your partner. Like, <laughs> just go I with promise. it. I know. Just, I'm not crazy. <laughs> I know. I promise. It'll I know. Help. It's, that's so funny, Carrie. I know it would be, it would, they, we, since PCOS is pretty rampant at this point, companies would do well to relabel. Yeah, that's what I always tell people too. You know, I'm like, it says prostate. I wish we could just come up with another term, but another, you know, sort of gender neutral. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Um, Another extremely useful uh, piece of this test that separates it from um, serum or saliva, having those derivative compounds from testosterone. And you do, and so you're able to measure testosterone directly plus the derivative. So different than progesterone. Right. 
Different than progesterone, right? Exactly. And DHEA is there as well, so you can. See. Yeah, so we do we do DHEAs actually. So yeah, the sulfated form. Good, right? And one of the things I forgot, you know, that's a great clinical pearl, um, is that inflammation lowers sulfation, and so sometimes when you don't have those extra metabolites to look at, you may think, oh, the, this person makes really low DHEAs levels. I'm going to put them on DHEA as a supplement. And it turns out really their metabolites, their downstream metabolites are perfectly normal and their testosterone is perfectly normal. And it means their DHEA is making DHEA. It's just not sulfating it because of the inflammation. And so then people say, well, what do I do now? I'm like, well, you address the inflammation. If you address the inflammation, of course, as we, as we should, um, the sulfation improves and then their DHEAS will go up naturally because it's not a DHEA production problem. It's just a conversion into the S form. That's a, that's a great pearl. So I just want to I want to restate it. Make sure yeah. I've, I've I've got it. Normal testosterone, normal testosterone metabolites, low DHEAs. Um, think inflammation. Think sulfation imbalance. Yes. Yep. Perfect. Yes. Okay. Okay. Um, and then of course you can, the test is pretty, it's pretty nicely laid out. It, it sort of lays, it's laid out in that steroidogenic pathway kind of style. So you can see where the hormones flow to each other. Testosterone of course is aromatized to the estrogens and you can see when they're, when that might, might be upregulated as well, which incidentally I tend to see estrogen dominance in PCOS. You see the mm -hmm. aromatase seems to be up and up and galloping. Um, you know, any comments on that? Just when you see the, or in men, of course, you can see the estrogen yeah. dominance picture in men. So what do you yeah. do when you, when you find that on your patients? And Well, and so the reasons, of course, are very, very similar to, a, to um, maybe an alpha pathway person or a low DHAS. Things that stimulate aromatase, inflammation. Um, blood sugar and insulin dysregulation, having extra fat tissue, you know, having extra adipose tissue because aromatase happens in the fat tissue and that's where, that's where it starts. And so, um, it's, so sometimes you can look at a Dutch test and see this, this big picture pattern. Oh my gosh, you're an alpha person. You over aromatize your DHEAS is low. If, and, and everyone wants to know, well, what supplement do I give them? Like, no, no, figure out why are they so inflamed? What is going on with their blood sugar and their insulin? Yes. Are they having a difficult time losing weight? Are they overweight? You know, start with the basics and work backwards. Obviously, there's stuff you can do for, you know, to prevent aromatization. But if you don't start with the cause, if you don't get the inflammation down or get the blood sugar under control, it'll just keep happening. <laughs> yes. They'll just, they'll, uh, this, a poor man will continue to gain weight and, you know, have man boobs and yep. women will continue to be estrogen dominant and, and with low sex drives. And, right. And so right. Or concurrent elevated androsterone, you know, with right. and, yeah. and hirsutism, et cetera. So, yeah, absolutely. Right. So it's, it's, it's nicely laid out. We can see what's going on. Um, I want to just back up and talk a little bit. I'm saying back up because I'm going, I'm scrolling up to the very first page <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> of the test yes. and just talk about um, cortisol. Yeah. Uh, looking at with cortisol and thinking about, you know, you look at cortisone as well as cortisol. So just talk about what we're seeing here. And then I also want to ping you about how we might think about how we might get an indirect snapshot into thyroid function when we're looking yeah. at the hormone. So cover, the, 
cover all things adrenal hormones. <laughs> and go. <laughs> <laughs> um, so definitely what sets the, the dried urine test or urine testing apart, I, you know, for sure. You know, we look at cortisol, we look at free cortisol, we look at cortisone, which is inactive. And the one thing I want to point out, people will say, oh, I take hydrocortisone cream. That's the same thing. I'm like, no, no, no. Hydrocortisone is cortisol, which a lot of people don't realize. So cortisone that's gone through hydrogenation turns into is cortisol. And that's why it's a terrible naming thing on the end of the pharmaceutical company. So hydrocortisone cream is really cortisol. So we look at cortisone, which is inactive, cortisol, which is active. And then we look at it, something called metabolized cortisol. And that gives you an, a, a snapshot or a window into how much cortisol is your patient making in total. So basically, we answer the questions, can they make cortisol, how much is free and active, and how much is getting deactivated into cortisone. And then just like on you know, saliva tests, we graph it out through the day. We do a morning, you know, mid-morning, and then around dinner and before bed. And so with, that pat with those patterns, I can see like, okay, you're either making enough cortisol or you're not. Um, how much is free and active? Okay, you have enough that's free or you don't. Or I can look at then cortisone to say, oh my gosh, you are deactivating all of your cortisol to cortisone. That the pro that's where the problem is. And, and the treatments are different. Usually when somebody has low cortisol, as an example, they're, they're really tired, maybe they have a lot of stress. Um, you know, we hear the quote unquote chronic fatigue type symptom or even quote unquote adrenal fatigue, mm -hmm. um, which I would definitely argue is much more an HPA access thing in its entirety. Yeah. Um, but they'll say, okay, I'm going to put them on all these, you know, I'm going to Cortef, I'm going to put them on ad or adaptogens. I'm going to put them on all these things to stimulate cortisol. Like, well, actually look at their cortisone. If they're just deactivating a cortisone, you want to reactivate. So, you know, the treatments are different and it can be really life-changing for a lot of people who say, I've been on these protocols for a long time and they're not working, or I had an adverse reaction. What's the deal? And I can look at these three dials and say, oh, it's actually just a bigger picture. Here's really what's going on. And which, and then you brought up thyroid, which is a great example. So well, when the, we, oh, oh yeah, actually, yes, no, 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 go. I, you're okay. finished. I'm so sorry. Then I'll, no, I'll that's fine. Yeah. So with the thyroid, now you, you can't do, you can't do thyroid testing in, in urine um, at all. That's a serum test. But when the thyroid slows down, so when you have somebody that's hypothyroid or maybe cellular hypothyroid, Everything slows down, as we know, right? Digestion slows down, um, metabolism slows down, hair growth slows down. Well, the production of cortisol slows down, and the clearance of cortisol at the liver slows down. And so, when you look at a Dutch test, when you're looking at those dials, what you'll notice is metabolized cortisol, which kind of indicates production, is really low. Yeah. And then, because it's not getting cleared out the liver, because the liver is slowed down, you have all this excess free cortisol that can't get metabolized. And so it's really high. And it, so it, it, it's this really neat window to go, huh, you know what? I, th I think you actually have a thyroid problem, um, either overtly or subclinically, uh, and it's showing up in the adrenals. And if you address the thyroid or if you address both at the same time, then you'll actually have a much happier patient and, you know, better outcomes. This is so helpful. So I want to just, I want to run through these patterns and have you you know, uh, add or, or correct. Yeah. And you wouldn't have this if you had, if you were just looking at 
serum cortisol or if you were only looking at saliva we wouldn't get this stand back and check it out so it's so it's it's extremely useful to me i love it um so i have got this functional thyroid assay built in it's not really thyroid i, I always measure thyroid in in blood but if i see somebody with a cranked up free cortisol which if that's all I had, I'd be like, wow, you're actually looking, you know, you're really yeah. revved up. We need to tone you down. Right, and right. That's how I would have interpreted that if I did not have the metabolites. So I see this cranked up free cortisol, but then I look at and see whether they're metabolizing it or not, and they're, and it, and they're absolutely not. Then I'm thinking thyroid. Yep. And, and that is interesting. So you've got somebody with, you know, they might have half thyroid picture. You know, they've got really dry skin. They're losing hair. They're constipated, et cetera. They've got some degree of fatigue, but they also have like this buzzy sort of mm -hmm. cortisol thing going on as well. Would you say that you're kind of seeing that collection of, of, of um, symptomatology in these people? All the time. All the time, and you know, and then I and I talk to practitioners, and and I'll say, oh, they have the classic thyroid picture, and and then the practitioner will go, that's so interesting, they have all the thyroid symptoms, or that's so interesting, I just ran their thyroid panel, and they either have overt hypothyroidism, or yeah, wow, their T four is in T three are kind of subclinically low, and they have all these symptoms. I'm like, yeah, it's showing up in the adrenals. And you can throw, so you could throw all of the cortisol interventions. You could throw all sorts of, of um, botanicals at them uh, for adrenal function and not turn anything really appreciably around because, because really it's pointing strongly to the thyroid. And, and, they, and they may feel, as we know, because we have this experience before, they may feel better for a little while and then they get worse again because the thyroid was never addressed. Yes. Yeah. Right. God, yeah. it's so, it's such a pearl. Okay, so I, and now what if they've got um, really cranked up metabolized cortisol? So, so that the, yeah, the opposite picture, yeah. So, when, so metab when metabolized cortisol is super, super high, then I start to think fight or flight reasons. So really high stress, pain, inflammation, infection, um, insulin dysregulation, because of course, as we know, cortisol, its primary job is to handle blood sugar. Uh, management, um, obesity, because, you know, the stupid fat tissue can make cortisol on its own. Um, and, and the opposite hyperthyroid. So we see patients, at, I'm sure you do too, that are maybe on too much thyroid medication or they're on, you know, heaps of thyroid supplements <laughs> yep. and they're actually in a hyperthyroid state, um, or Graves. I mean, sometimes, or they're, they're in the hyperthyroid state of Hashimoto's and you know, they have Hashimoto's, but you know, in yep. the early they can go back and forth between hyper and hypo. And so sometimes that will occur, but usually it's the fight or flight reasons. Usually it's that infection, inflammation, pain. And when I ask the practitioner when I, or when I'm doing, you know, digging with the patients, sure enough, it's there, there's something they have, you know, they're overweight or they have Epstein-Barr, they have Lyme or they have, um, you know, a lot of gut dysregulation. Of course they have SIBO, they, um, foods, you know, food intolerances, food allergies, celiac. I mean, it's amazing what you can pick up on just on that dial. When you go back and ask the patient, they're like, oh yeah, wow. I'm a mess. I have all these things and I feel very inflamed all the time. I'm like, yeah, it's showing up in your cortisol. Gosh, what a no, it's just an, it's another great window. So, so again, folks, really high metabolized cortisol and you know, low or even normal free cortisol, but just an aggressive uh, breakdown of, of cortisol. And, yeah. and you've just outlined pretty much everything that walks into a functional medicine office. Yeah. If, you're in, if, you're in, if, you're, if you're working with, you know, chronic, chronic, chronic disease folks, 
you can see that it really weighs down. If you think of the person as a web, you know, an interconnected being, it weighs heavily on adrenal function. Um, and, and then what people will say to me, which this is my, the, my biggest, you know, like soapbox thing is they'll say, oh, the, okay, the metabolized cortisol is really high. And let's, as an example, they, oh yeah, I did a stool test. They have SIBO and, you know, candida and they need to go off gluten. They're very inflamed. I'm like, okay. And then they'll say, well, what supplement do I put them on? How do I get the metabolized cortisol lower? And I'm like, remember the cortisol is responding to what's happening in the body there. It's blood sugar. Cortisol does blood sugar management. Cortisol does is anti-inflammatory to a point. Cortisol responds to inflammatory cytokines. Of course, cortisol helps with, you know, does the circadian rhythm and manages stress. So it's not like a supplement is going to magically drop the metabolized cortisol. You still have to go for the cause. You still have to, in that example, clean up the gut, get rid of the infections, eliminate the gluten, and then naturally cortisol, the HPA axis will say, oh, the inflammation's dropped. I'm not needed anymore. I'll stop pumping out so much cortisol. Perfect. And then it will start to drop. Extremely useful. Uh, and I get it. And that's what I see. Take, we, we do, I think in our world, we do tend to jump on um, pushing adrenal interventions and pushing thyroid interventions when in fact what you're arguing for and I agree is just backing up and working with underlying causes right um, okay so then the third pattern would be um, tanked free cortisol tanked metabolites yeah yeah and that's your classic that, well it could be a couple reasons but that's your classic like what people say quote unquote, adrenal fatigue or HPA access dysfunction. So if, if the brain is not telling the adrenals to make cortisol, it won't. And therefore you maybe don't even have the free cortisol floating around. Now, the big thing I always ask, and it, man, it is surprising to me how many um, practitioners come back and say, oh gosh, my patient's taking this. But remember, steroids suppress the HPA access and it's, it's spring. And so yes. I'm like, or the, or it's winter, you know, wherever you are. And I'm like, remember steroid inhalers, remember steroid nasal sprays for allergies. I mean, your patients are out in their garden and they're using, you know, cortisone creams, hydrocortisone creams because they've got a rash or they got poison ivy. And so you have to ask your patient, Hey, are you taking anything? And even as the practitioner, if you didn't prescribe it, maybe they just forgot to tell you that like in, in allergy season, they take Nasonex nasal spray every single day or in the fall and winter, they use their steroid inhaler every day and you didn't prescribe it, but you, they just forgot to tell you because it was the wrong season when you saw them. Now, the other big thing, which is a huge epidemic in the United States are opioids. Um, it's uh, opioids will completely shut down the HPA access. Um, and so I've actually had, a, a, when I talk, see these suppressed cortisol values, I'll say, any chance they're on steroids, any chance they're on opioids. And funny enough, I've had some practitioners come back and say, well, I didn't prescribe the opioid, but turns out, and then they'd have this wild and crazy story of how the patient either hurt themselves or recently had some sort of minor surgery or decided, you know, they got into opioids for some reason and, you know, did the Dutch test and it showed up. Yes. And then lastly is Accutane. Accutane has been shown in the literature um, in some people to, um, um, affect the hypothalamus. It will, it will destroy cells of the hypothalamus. And so you can get this. Uh, I had an endocrinologist describe it as a pseudo Addison's disease and it was Accutane induced. And so wow. for those, those teenagers and, and college students who are on Accutane um, for acne and then finding out their cortisol is tanked later in life. 
um, be aware it potentially could be accutane induced. And so when you see when you see a very low free cortisol and a very low metabolized cortisol, I mean, do you need to move towards an Addison workup? I mean, any comments on? Um, I do. I run through all those things first. You know, I'll run through like um, history of TBI, anything that affects the hypothalamus and pituitary that will then not have cortisol, you know, become released from the adrenals. I'll run through, I'll run through medication history, like steroids, Accutane, opioids. I'll run through all the typical stuff. And if it's like, no, 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 I swear, not even a possibility. I'm like, okay, now we need to work them up for Addison's. Yes. Okay. So just keep that in mind, folks. I know, uh, well, I, I think we're evolving our understanding to from adrenal fatigue, which is what we were taught in school. This was oh, yeah. to yeah. Um, HPA dysfunction, axis dysfunction, but but we are absolutely responsible. You could pick up Addison's with this test, and we just need to be mindful around that and either you know refer or initiate a good workup yourself. Um, and especially if they have other autoimmune, right? If they have Hashi, they're like, oh, well, they have Hashimoto's and, yep. and celiac. I'm like, well, <laughs> yep. there's your triad. <laughs> yep. Yep. You should test for Addison's. Yep, absolutely. Uh, any comments on DHEA? Just the DHEA's relationship, you want to just give a little snapshot of that? Yeah. So on, well, on the Dutch test, people, what happens is on the, on, if you do the complete, which is um, the test that you'll have linked in the comments, um, so on, we have DHEA-S, and then we have an adrenal page to our test, and it says total DHEA. And people go, well, what's the difference? So total DHEA is where we take, we add DHEA-S plus the metabolites up, and that lets you know if, you, if your patient can make DHEA. And then which direction it's headed is why we give you each individual metabolite. So, for example, if you're looking at page three, we have DHEA-S, and then we have two metabolites. One starts with an E. I don't know why they have to be the most difficult words in the world, but one starts with an E. It's edocalanolone. <laughs> and the other one, right? And the other one is androsterone. And so we add the three of them together, and that gives you the picture of um, can your patient make DHEA? Do they need DHEA supplementation? And, and, and then the, and those dials tell you which, which way they're headed, alpha pathway, beta pathway, sulfation pathway. No, but as we know, DHEA can definitely go up for totally protective reasons, right? It protects against cortisol's damage in the brain. So sometimes somebody will have a really high DHEA, but they're also super stressed out and they have elevated cortisol. And, and I get asked, oh, what do I do to bring their DHEA down? I'm like nothing. Get their stress down, you know. Don't worry about the DHEA right now. It, it's it's probably protecting the body from the damage of cortisol. Focus on the cortisol and the stress, and then DHEA will gradually drop over time. But of course, we know DHEA. If you suspect PCOS, that's different. PCO, DHEA androgens can go up um, with with PCOS, and, and you know, androgens can actually go up with certain medications. There's some uh, research to show. Uh, Wellbutrin, um, Xanax, and certain ADD medications. I think it's Ritalin is the biggest one. I'd have to look that back up again. And I definitely see that I'll see patients on Wellbutrin and on Ritalin and their DHA will really high. And I'm like, well, I'm pretty sure that's medication induced. So not much we can do about that. I mean, other than, you know, work to maybe address the cause and get them off the medications, but nothing, you know, right in the moment I can say, here, take this supplement. It'll drop your DHEA. Um, and alcohol, that's another big one. And I will see that I'll, I'll talk to practitioners or to patients who are like, well, yeah, I have a couple glasses of wine every night. I'm like, okay, well, you're affecting your blood sugar and it's affecting you and you're also affecting your DHEA. So let's work on that. 
you see the DHEA increase? I do up. It goes up. Yeah. Wow. And do you see it? I mean, do you see changes to testosterone or to the metabolites as well? Um, you know, I haven't noticed that as much. Mm-hmm. I, I notice it a l- just more with the DHEA when I'm running through my why might it be elevated questions. Right. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah. You know, I was in a, I worked when I first moved back to Connecticut, I was in a tertiary care pain center. And, you know, everybody, of course, was on opioids. And I did indeed, I had saliva back then, but mm-hmm. I would absolutely see you know, HPA suppression, and of course, you know, hypogonadism, testosterone was always, you know, very low in, in, in people on opiates. So another thing to think about if you've got yes. um, yeah. anybody. Now, what about the, the classic cortisol steel uh, and DHEA? Any comments on that? Well, actually, so with that one, you mean that um, with progesterone, is that what you mean? Well, DHEA being used as um, being commandeered for uh, uh, cortisol production. Oh, um, you know that I, I think that's really um, that's a hot topic. <laughs> yeah, tell me. So, so, so what? It's what's the deal? Made an entirely different layer of the adrenals, and so and and it's made. You know, when when the body wants to make a hormone, it it pulls cholesterol in. Like my example is pregnenolone. When the body wants to make a hormone, it pulls cholesterol into the mitochondria. Pregnenolone happens to be a hormone along the way. And then it keeps going. It keeps going to make whatever hormone it needs to make, estrogen, progesterone, whatever. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so we, I, you and I got taught the pregnenolone steal all through school. And um, it turns out the mitochondria don't steal from each other's mitochondria as far as we know. And because the pregnenolone is being made in the mitochondria, um, the pregnenolone steel is probably not true, like we were taught. However, pregnenolone still works. What happened is pregnenolone, when you take it orally, when you take it as a supplement, it turns into those same alpha metabolites as progesterone that cross the blood-brain barrier oh, fascinating. work from the brain down. And so people will say, well, I give my patient pregnenolone and they feel better. I'm like, I know. It's just a different mechanism of action than we were all taught in school. Okay. Uh, all right. <laughs> Fabulous. Fabulous. So, so this whole idea of the, of DHEA's involvement in, um, the, in cortisol is, I don't is, know is that I don't know. Yeah. Well, I don't, I don't know that I fully believe that just okay. because again, they're made in yep. different layers of the adrenal gland yep. and yep. the mitochondria don't steal from each other. So it would be, it, it'd be kind of tough to convince me otherwise. I get why people say it. I see it on the steroid pathway. Absolutely. I was taught the same thing in school. But the well, more I, think, I read the literature, I'm like, um, that's I not think, how mitochondria work. Right, right, right. Well, I think it, I think it goes all the way back to Cellier, right? Doesn't yeah, it? yeah. So, well, yeah, girl, actually. you set, set that record straight. <laughs> <laughs> but nice. you, you, you heard, heard it here first. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no. Anyway, yeah, no, I, I think it's really great that we're pushing the paradigm along and, you know, and cleaning our language up and moving towards HPA dysregulation versus adrenal fatigue, quote, adrenal fatigue. Although when I wrote the case studies um, in integrative and functional medicine, I actually, in a, we had an adrenal fatigue case in there and I made an argument why I, why I thought we should adopt the term. But I, uh, <laughs> I have to say that, um, that we've moved along and I'm, I'm, it's true. You know, and it's, yeah. it's function does, it makes sense. It's, it's just, and I, you know, I tell people who, who argue, you know, who, you know, obviously people really identify with 
with their symptoms as they should and their, and their diagnoses. And I'm like, I'm not telling you don't, you don't have it. I think you're tired. Absolutely. I believe you're tired. Um, it's just the mechanism of action yep. may be a little bit different than what we used to think or how, it, you know, how it works. Yeah. It's just different. And it's, you know, just like you were saying with DHEA and cortisol and, and, and pushing this um, paradigm that we all do in functional medicine, like we're just trying to get it is it's ever evolving and we're trying to just be as accurate as possible. I fully believe the symptoms are real. Absolutely. And yep. the treatment work, it's just the how and the why are evolving. Yes. Yep. I, I agree. And then we were able to actually refine and yeah. uh, expand on our treatment when yeah. we have a, a fuller understanding. All right. That's so a couple it. other things you've got going on this test, which is pretty handy dandy is, um, you are measuring 8-hydroxy to deoxyguanosine. So yes. Like talk about that. Yes. So 8-OHDG. So that is an oxidative stress marker and a marker of DNA damage. And so it's a really neat marker when you're following somebody who maybe has cancer risk or, you know, active cancer, um, inflammation, things that involve, you know, a lot of oxidative damage to the body. Um, and then you can be proactive about it and try to help heal your DNA and get your own antioxidant system back up to snuff. That's lovely. So you could flip back over. Um, I'm back to page three. <laughs> and you could look at all of these amazing um, functional insights into inflammation that Dr. Jones just went through. So we could see increased aromatase activity and testosterone moving towards the estrogens. You could see increased um, 16, the estrogen uh, derivatives, you could see increased 4-hydroxy, which is, which then is um, potentially going to initiate cancer by, you know, forming quinone addicts on the DNA. And, yep. you know, we can see an increase in some of these more uh, androgenic uh, testosterone metabolites, et cetera, et cetera. So you pointed out a whole bunch of ways that we can see inflammation. And then you can scroll down to 80H2DG and see whether or not, you know, that's elevated as well, which is really kind of corro corroborating, you know, that full yeah. picture. Yeah. And then the patient in front of you, of course, has, you know, has got chunkle adiposity and, you know, they're eating at McDonald's, et cetera. And they're, they're, yeah, <laughs> the full thing. Awesome. Well, I think it's great that you added it on. And I, and I, and I, I, I knew that you were thinking about it and it was just kind of a neat thing for me to pop open one of my more, more recent reports and say, oh, wow, there's 80HDG. Yeah. Um, yeah. And next to that, Carrie, is melatonin. So yeah. So, and what's interesting, because it's a urine test, people always get concerned and confused. We test melatonin off the very first urine sample. The waking sample is what it's caused or called. Um, and people go, well, melatonin's low in the morning. Why do you do that? Well, the reason is because you have been sleeping all night and all your urine has been collecting your bladder and then we collect it first mm. thing in the morning. So all wow. the melatonin is used up pushed into the bladder and we catch it. And that's why we do it on the morning and not the um, evening sample. And so you get this really great picture into your baseline melatonin. Can you make it? Is it, you know, too high? Is it, you know, way too low? And that's the problem. And then it, it helps with to go with sleep and antioxidants. Yeah, obviously melatonin is a really powerful antioxidant. So it's really neat information. That's great information. So you're looking at, as long as the patient doesn't have nocturia, you're basically looking at an overnight specimen. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. And we do have, we do in all the kits, we do include five strips. And that way, if they do get up in the middle of the night, for example, if you get up at three in the morning to urinate, you collect a fifth strip and we can pull the melatonin off of the fifth strip 
and the, the waking sample. So we don't miss it, I should say. That's fabulous. Yeah. Um, all right. Let me see if I've got any other questions. You've, <laughs> you've been a font of really useful information. I think people will, um, will really love it. I, any, com any comments on sort of melatonin's kind of somewhat antagonistic relationship with cortisol? Yeah, actually, I always say that cortisol is the bully. And so if you have really high cortisol at night, mm -hmm. um, you will often have lower melatonin um, just because cortisol seems to, not in every patient, of course, but I see it often enough on the Dutch test. And, and I know another, I've talked to other practitioner doctors who work at other, you know, sort of competitor companies and they're like, yeah, we see the same thing um, that they'll have lower end melatonin. Now, melatonin, as we know, is make, made from serotonin and it's primarily for circadian rhythm made in the pineal gland, but obviously it can be made in the gut as well and can, and can change with gut inflammation. But as regards to the pineal gland, you know, I sell people, I tell people you have to get off your phones, you have to get off your computers at night, or you have to buy those sexy blue blo light blocking glasses. You know, you have to buy your orange little lensed glasses to, to cut that out um, in order to get the melatonin up. But then you also have to do all your sleep hygiene things to get your cortisol down yes. at night as well. And, and if you're, like I said earlier, if your melatonin is really low, um, it, it's, a, it's a big antioxidant in your system. And if you don't make enough melatonin, it's not just sleep. It can affect a lot of things like DNA you know, damage and cell turnover. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty important. Mm, so you might see a low melatonin and a high 80-HDG, although, yeah, Absolutely. although mm -hmm. 80-HDG is, you know, impacted by many other variables, yeah, a lot sure. of which you've outlined. Great yeah. job today. You know, yeah. you've, you've interconnected the dots. Lovely. Yeah, and I thank you. <laughs> and you, you have a lot of good educational resources over at um, the website. We do. And we're actually expanding it quite a bit. We have a list of about 30 videos that we are in the process of making, diving more into um, um, some of these clinical pearls and um, herbs and nutrients, hormones, supplements, how it affects the test, some things you might consider if you see a high or a low value, um, just to give people more uh, guidance, because we know our test is really thorough. And just like you had said earlier, I, when, when people first see the test, sometimes it can be very overwhelming. And I say, it's just like a steroid pathway, just follow the arrows. And that's the way a steroid pathway moves. So you can see above and below, but we're hoping to um, really expand all of our videos. However, right now on the website on dutchtest.com, they are completely free. You don't have to be a provider signed up to get access to them. You can just go, they're about five to 10 minutes long and you can just dive right in yourself. Go for it, folks. It's, it's, it's quite, quite useful. And incidentally, as a clinicians, when you order the, um, the Dutch test, you do have access to Dr. Jones if you need to pick her brain. And I think initially, Carrie, you, you do give some interpretive. We do. Yeah. We actually have five uh, doctors that work for the wow. lab now. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> We've expanded a little bit. Um, and so there's five of us that, that do all, um, Three of us are full time, and so you can you can pick a lot of people's brains. But yes, on the very first test you ever do, we do send you an email, and it does put it into layman's terms. So we, you know we can say, hey, this is what your patient said, this is what we see on the report, this is what we suggest. You know, um, let us know if you have any questions. But it's pretty thorough; it's several paragraphs long that we go into. 
and then they can request. So clinicians, you can talk to the um, medical tech team, you know, ad nauseum until you understand okay. and you understand Absolutely. all of these nuances that we've pointed out today. Yeah. Um, and you can also grab the transcript of this. I'm going to try to harness or harvest as many pearls um, as I possibly can and put them into bullets for you so you can uh, glean, you know, the, 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 the material that you'll be applying immediately from this um, from this podcast. Anyway, again, Dr. Jones, it was great to reconnect with you and thank you so much. I know. So fun. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Absolutely.